right. I am now joined by Jesse Spafford. Jesse, you want to tell the nice people who you are? Sure. Hi, everyone. My name is Jesse, and uh, I'm a research fellow at Trinity College Dublin, uh, working in their philosophy department. Um, yeah, and I sort of do some research on socialism, anarchism, and sort of trying to make the moral case for these ideologies. Yeah, so uh, so one thing that, I mean, I I think that I find, I found really interesting about the papers of yours that, uh, that I've read is the way that you're engaging with, um, well, both, um, I mean, so we had a previous conversation, which is actually going to be unlocked as part of the GTA episode tomorrow night, uh, that was directly about an argument that G.A. Cohen makes. So it's this is like kind of core, you know, analytical Marxism. Uh, but uh, but in general, I, I think that, you know, you're engaging in a, you know, analytic philosophy ish way with uh, with a lot of material that's going to be interested i think to a lot of people who would listen to this uh because uh you know because it has to do with sort of core kind of political and ideological things that they're uh that they're interested in so for example uh the one that i invited you on to uh to talk about uh today has to do with a article by uh Somebody actually debated last year on whether taxation is theft. Uh, Michael Humer, and um, you know, it's about an art. You know, sort of take an argument that Humer makes. Uh, that's like a an anarchist argument, an anti-state argument, which you know, to be clear, right? You agree mm-hmm. with, or at least you know, you agree with a version of it, right? Uh, but uh, the the point you make, which I think is is interesting. You know, well, certainly it is in my case, right? Even to people who uh, might not necessarily go that far, is is that you can make a a structurally parallel argument um, against libertarian property rights, right? Like, so for somebody like Huber, kind of um, property rights are sort of you know, in a certain sense, the whole point of the anti-statism, you know, but, but I think that your point is that it, it cuts both ways. So that's a little preview of coming attractions, but we should probably like take a few steps back to, to start to unpack all of this. So do you want to start by, by telling us in a general sense what Huber's argument is? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but you know, I think that's a nice synopsis. Yeah. So basically humor sort of his argumentative strategy is to try to use our intuitions and sort of intuitions we have about core cases to motivate us to maybe reject the state and think that maybe the state isn't justified in the way that like a lot of people think it is. Um, so basically he says, you know, think about, you know, suppose that you had a neighbor who basically did a lot of the things that the state does, right? Mm-hmm. So the state uses all sorts of coercion to try to regulate people's behavior, uh, and enact a particular agenda. Uh, and we sort of take this for granted as normal and, you know, acceptable, um, morally acceptable um, for the most part. And he says, well, yeah, but imagine how you would feel if just your neighbor started acting in the ways that a state does. You know, suppose that a neighbor started regulating your behavior and said, oh, you know, you now can't drink soda pop. And if you try to drink soda in your home, like I will come and I will take it away from you. And if you try to resist, you know, I'll bring you to my basement and lock you up. 
mm-hmm. right? Or suppose that uh, your neighbor starts waging war on other neighborhoods and trying to acquire additional territory, uh, right? Pretty clearly in this case, we could say, oh, you know, this person is a monster, right? They're somebody who is really, uh, you know, behaving in ways that are immoral and unacceptable, and we should try to restrain them and keep them from acting in these ways. Uh, but then humor says, you know, this is just what the state does, right? The state is just a big collection of people, and they use this sort of coercive, you know, they, they coerce people in these ways all the time, and we kind of don't blink an eye, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, well, basically, this suggests that people take the state to have some sort of special right to use coercion that we don't grant to just everyday other people. Uh, and he says, you know, this this raises the question then, of, well, what is it that justifies the state? Why is it fine for the police to, you know, come and, you know, arrest you for, say, smoking marijuana in your home when you would never... You know, we would never tolerate that if just was somebody else, a non-police officer doing the same thing. Right. And basically the strategy of his book is he then tries to consider some of the justifications that might be given, you know, what he takes to be the best justifications for the state's special right to coerce and argues that they just don't work. Um, right. So, for example, like you might think that democracy, the fact that the state is democratic justifies that. But he'll say things like, well, you know, suppose that all of your neighbors vote that it's OK for them <laughs> to come and take away, you know, the soda in your house. Right. Does that make their coercion justified if, you know, you try to resist and then they put you in a basement? Seemingly not. Right. So it's that sort of argumentative strategy, trying to appeal to these intuitive cases to try to show that uh, the state coercion isn't justified. Yeah. So uh, good. So I I think that's like pretty, you know, pretty clear how that argument works that um, and you know, and I mean, to be fair, I mean, I, I think this is probably something that, you know, even, you know, <laughs> even people like me who don't completely buy it might be tempted to uh, might be tempted to use a structurally similar argument when it comes to like specific state activities that we don't like. So, you right. know, like that, that probably suggests that there's there's something to it. Right. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but then you, uh, you know, like you argue that there is a similar argument that you could you could make um, against like private property claims in general. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So basically, I think that just the same sort of argument can be deployed. So you know, in the same way, right? Humor starts with the observation that state regulation uh, is coercive in a way that seemingly is prima facie problematic. You know, demands justification. Um, and similarly, you know, when we think about private property and you know, private property gives people, uh, you know, private property owners have this special right to coerce people and to use their coercion to keep people from using their property, right? If you try to go into somebody's house, they'll say, you know, I didn't give you permission to come in here. You have to leave right away. If you don't comply, then they'll call the police. The police will come. They'll forcibly remove you. If you resist, again, you'll end up in jail. Um, So in the same way that the state exercises, you know, this coercive you know, the same way this, the state coercively regulates people within its territory and regulates its territory more generally, property owners are able to coercively regulate uh, their sort of claimed territory. Uh, and I think this raises the question then of, well, what justifies this coercion? Because I think if we think, you know, suppose that you th- people, you know, people who weren't property owners acted in the way that property owners do, mm-hmm. right? Seemingly, their actions would be just as problematic as, you know, the sort of humorous case of the neighbor who behaves badly, um, right? So suppose that, you know, the case I give in this chapter is I say, you know, suppose that you're on a boat tour with a bunch of people and you reach an island and all of a sudden, you know, you're about to get out and disembark and explore the island and some passenger pushes ahead of you and says, actually, no, this is my island. 
Nobody can come <laughs> on it. You can only come on the island if you pay me $50 and take off your shoes first. Uh-huh. You know, and everyone's sort of like, oh, you know, what do you mean? Like, this is, we're going to explore the island. Like, get out of our way. And, you know, they try to get on the island. But then, you know, the person, the passenger and their friends, like, grab you and tie you up and say, sorry, you know, this is, this is my island now. You know, you've got to, <laughs> you, you know, until you stop resisting, like, we're going we're gonna to hold you here. Um, right? You'd think, well, this person is a menace, right? They're sort of acting, acting like a bully and sort of using violence to ha- you know, get their way. Um, but this is just, you know, what I would claim property owners do. So then there's this sort of puzzle of like, well, if it seems like this is bad, you know, sort of bad behavior, why is it that we think that property owners are justified in acting this way? And then I'd run the same sort of argument and I say, well, I consider a bunch of the you know, sort of most prominent arguments, you know, the most prominent justifications as to why property owners have this special right to coerce and argue that they don't work. And I sort of try to do this for libertarian reasons. You know, I try to show that, you know, libertarians own commitments would push them to think that these you know, property owners are actually acting badly when they deploy coercion to regulate their claimed property. Yeah. Yeah, right. So um, this, you know, and you could take like, okay, so, so I want to say two things about this. So one is that, um, you know, I like this argument, you know, a lot, even though, you know, my preferred conclusion, you know, <laughs> would be a little different, right? You know, but like, I just, I just think it sort of usefully demonstrates that the two are sort of down at all fours together. And, you know, we, and we, uh, and, and there isn't, um, you know, and you could either sort of say like, well, maybe, you know, I mean, look, you could make the move that libertarians in my experience actually very often make, uh, given fundamental objections to property rights, which is to sort of start talking like, in this kind of consequentialist way, like, oh, well, we need some way of, of figuring out how to deal with, you know, scarce resources. And this is mm-hmm. like, you know, this is a pretty good system. Uh, but of course that the analogy usefully invites us to think, well, okay, then, you know, you could, you know, start to right. make similar consequentialisty, you know, arguments, uh, arguments for, for a state and like, whatever you, you know, whatever you make of that, um, you can, uh, you know, whatever you make of that, like, uh, like you, it's one of these, you know, one of these two sorts of claims about justified coercion is not an obviously different footed than the, uh, than the other one. But I am interested in, before we go to calls and just sort of briefly get in your own, your own take, right? Since the, the position mm-hmm. that, that you're arguing for isn't, um, you know, isn't like, you know, some sort of like moderately statist leftism like mine. And it's also not like, it's also clearly not libertarianism, right? That's the target of the argument. It's what you call social anarchism. So what is that? Yeah. Well, so there's a, I think there's a couple of different ways that you could actually take this argument. So suppose that you grant me that, you know, property is problematically coercive and you can't actually justify people having this special right. Then it's sort of like, well, where do we go from here? Uh, Yeah. And I sort of, in the, in the chapter, I, I lay out two paths um, you know, and one of which is sort of what I call like radical pacifist anarchism, where you just say, well, you know, there is just something fundamentally problematic about using coercion to control resources of any kind. Um, and so as a result, we have to find ways to manage resources that are non-coercive. Um, so, for example, it's trying to seek out universal consent from people, you know, using kind of the classic mm-hmm. anarchist federated structure where people gather together. They try to come to some consensus about how to use resources. 
you send a representative up to a higher level federation. The federation, they kind of all try to come to an agreement. They bring it back down to the lower levels to get ratification. And then theoretically, you get universal consent. And that the, the thought being that that would then legitimate the coercion people use. Um, I think, you know, there's something I think attractive about this from a moral sense, but from a practical standpoint, this would be quite inefficient. Um, it would be, you know, it would really make it very hard to manage a society productively. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a bullet that some uh, anarchists would be happy to bite uh, and sort of, you know, but I also then present an alternative path uh, that I would characterize more as yeah, the kind of egalitarian anarchist or social anarchist position. And basically the idea here is that it tries to open up the door for a little bit of po- permissible coercion. So mm-hmm. what the egalitarian anarchist says is, yeah, it seems like the kinds of coercion that property owners exert is problematic and can't be justified. But this isn't to say that all coercion with respect to resources can't be justified. There's sort of a narrow set, you know, there's narrow uses of coercion that can be justified. And specifically, I suggest that it's egalitarian coercion that can be justified. So the only time that it really seems, I think, permissible to use coercion is when uh, doing so is sort of necessary for upholding, you know, basically a fair distribution of resources. So, for example, mm-hmm. I give a case where, you know, suppose you've got two people on an island and one of them, you know, can, is able to fish, but one isn't. So the one who can't eat fish, you know, eats peanuts inland. The one who can fish can't eat the peanuts. They're allergic, but they're both living basically equal lives, right? One's eating their mm-hmm. peanuts, one's eating their fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now suppose that the fisher person goes and wants to start trying to destroy all the peanuts and just, you know, clear cutting the island. Yeah. And then I think there's a question of, well, would it be permissible for the peanut eater to use coercion to stop the fisher person from clear cutting the forest? And I think the answer to me, I think it, it seems at least plausible. The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, because the, if, you know, if the forest is clear cut, the, you know, the person who can only eat peanuts is going to go hungry, right? They could even starve to death. At the very least, their life will go much worse through no fault of their own. That seems, I think, unfair, unjust. And that I think might justify them using this sort of limited sort of coercion to control resources. And so in that way, I think if, if you're open to that, right, that sort of opens the door to a sort of, you know, to being much more, a little, you know, quite a bit more permissive when it comes to coercion to manage resources in a way that might actually let you have something like an economy running, mm-hmm. um, you know, potentially, you know, arguably even something that, you know, that might resemble a social democratic state, you know, anarchists won't like this, but the sure. if you just have a large body of people who are governing resources and trying to make sure that resources are distributed in an egalitarian way, and that constraint, you know, that sort of constrains their use of coercion, that might be something that anarchists would think is justifiable, right? As long as they just use coercion to uphold egalitarian distributions of resources, that might sort of look permissible. So that's, I think, another route for anarchists to go, even if it maybe it starts to look a little bit less anarchist in character and starts to look a little bit more like a state. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's uh, let's go to Luke, who has been waiting to ask his question. Um, Luke, what's on your mind? Hey, um, yeah, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Joe, Jesse, I read your paper, and I generally agree with it. Um, covers some similar cool. ground as the individual anarchists, like uh, Kevin Carson and William Gillis. Um, mm-hmm. One case that I think is a useful contrast is allocation of wireless spectrum, where we okay. don't assign permanent property rights, but essentially allow firms to rent it from the public, which in theory carries responsibilities as well as rights and leaves the spectrum open as a commons. Um, that system's not beyond criticism, but it's obviously preferable. I think at the very least, you know, renting it from the public is preferable to permanently assigning, you know, property rights to some frequency or something. Um, 
So my question has to do with the normative conclusions of how so, to realize. So, 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 so Luke, just because that's so interested, I, I, I want to wait before you ask, ask your question. And, and could sure. you could you say just a little bit more about the rented model? Because because you said rented to the public seems preferable to to citing permanent rights. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that you know we can debate the legitimacy of uh, you know uh, the the political will of the polity to you know, side on behalf of the public, um, given that Spectrum is non-excludable, but is rivalrous. And that if we just, you know, allowed completely open you know, Spectra, uh, it might be difficult to have a radio station, right? They'd all be fine. Got it. Okay. Yep. And then in theory, I mean, I don't know if this is still the case, it carries responsibilities as well as rights. You have to, you know, have public service announcements. At one point we had the fair use doctrine, um, and so it, it can be something that uh, we can manage this scarcity without having to assign property rights as such, um, or at least not permanent property rights. Okay, um, so, so so the so so just just want to make sure that I'm getting the idea correct here. So the uh, that the sort of by so the analogy so the same way that like with uh, you know radio and TV, right? You know that the uh, that the public airwaves are, you know, theoretically uh, rented but not sold to, uh, to, to private entities, uh, that, this, that there's, something like, there's something like analogous that could go for the economy as a whole? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it, it, it kind of belies the question of, you know, is the state a consensual arrangement um, via democratic processes? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I see. Okay. Jesse. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so basically the, I mean, the line that I think I would take, right. So obviously there's the question of, you know, how do you think the state is legitimate? Anarchists typically say, no, people will disagree about this. Um, but I think there's space for some degree of common ground, right? Because in some sense, I think that the, the sort of broadband case you present is not that different from many resources, for example, just scarce resources uh, that would be destroyed or made unusable through, uh, you know, free use, right? So for example, think about like fishing stocks, right? right? Mm. If you just let people freely fish, right, they might actually overfish the commons and then nobody gets to fish, right? In the same way that sure. if you let everybody broadcast, then in some sense, nobody gets to broadcast. Sure. Uh, and right. And typically this is actually, you know, sort of an argument that libertarians will use to try to justify property rights, right? Because they say, well, mm -hmm. you know, we're all better off actually if we let, we sort of assign some of, you know, we give people these rights to control, you know, little shares of this mm. thing, whether, you know, it's shares of the bandwidth, shares of the fish stock, uh, and that allows, allows for productive management and use of these sure. sort of scarce resources. Um, and, you know, basically, I think, but again, I think the, the you know, the, the pushback that I think the anarchists would give you is they're going to say, well, you know, typically... Right. Does does this kind of benefit justify the use of coercion? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think often, you know, anarchists are going to want to say no. Right. Even the fact yeah, in some sense, we're all left better off by the fact that, you know, people are able to, you know, that you can actually use coercion to stop people from broadcasting on certain frequencies. You know, somebody mm -hmm. sets up a pirate radio station and you shut them down. Uh, and that actually in some sense leaves people better off, maybe even the broadcaster themselves, because, you know, now they're able to at least, you know, you make use of the fact that people are broadcasting, you know, in some sort of efficient way uh, that they couldn't if it was just totally jammed with, you know, pirate broadcasters. Uh, but typically, you know, libertarians and anarchists are generally going to say that 
the fact that you leave somebody better off is not sufficient justification for coercing them. Um, and so this is, for example, something humor says again and again, right? He says, oh, you know, you can't, right? You can't, for example, you know, suppose that you're eating potato chips and that's going to kill you in the long run. Like we know that, or you're smoking cigarettes, right? Can I, you know, point, you know, point a gun at you and say, well, you know, you have to stop smoking cigarettes now uh, or else, you know, or else I'm going to, you know, shoot you in the foot, right? The thought would be, well, in some sense, my coercion leaves you better off, but, right. you, know, do, you know, does that justify me coercing you? And usually libertarians are going to want to say no. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not permissible to use coercion, even if that's paternalistic and sort of two people's benefit. Um, so I think something similar would probably be said even in the broadband case, uh, right? Again, there's sort of this question of like, well, you know, can you, yeah, can you go and just you know, s- shut down somebody's little pirate broadcast system and smash, their, smash up their transmitter? Well, the fa- you know, seemingly that would be wrong. And the fact that you're leaving people better off you know, particularly other people, but even if you're leaving them better off, it seems like that isn't going to do the justificatory work. What I do think will do the justificatory work potentially, again, is an appeal to sort of distributive fairness, right? Which again, doesn't require any sort of appeal to the legitimacy of the state or democratic legitimacy, right? It's just a question of, well, you know, what would allow us to like ensure that people's lives go equally well, you know, and sort of they're able to achieve their fair share of advantage. And you might think that that justifies regulating bandwidth in certain ways, right? The only thing that can justify sort of shutting down somebody's pirate radio station is if that's ensuring that somebody, you know, lives an equally good life relative to them or something along those lines. Um, So I think there is some space for justifying the kind of rental scheme that you propose, but I would just want to go about it in this different way. So yeah, in order to justify the associated coercion that takes to enforce this rental scheme, you know, that's going to, you're going to want to have to probably appeal to some sort of considerations of egalitarian fairness. Totally. I, I'm uh, generally in alignment with that argument. I kind of, you know, uh, side with, you know, uh, social anarchism, left libertarianism, maybe like minarchism, something like that. And, uh, you know, my, my sort of splitting the difference answer would be to just bring that governance as fully as possible, uh, since as you increase voice and rights, uh, it sort of makes it arguably more consensual. Like, okay, if I don't like my neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that, if, if you can really, you know, make it a consensual process and like bring in a lot of voice. That can, you know, that can do a lot of legitimating work. But I do think there's difficulties of, you know, I, I do think that mm. to really do the legitimating work, it has to be genuine consent by the people sure. who are being bound by coercion. And I think that sure. that can be tough to do. Um, right. So, yeah. yeah, if you can actually do it, great. But I do think that, yeah. you know, often people totally. want to sort of yeah come up with schemes that sort of seems, you know, seem like they're legitimating, but I think often don't actually do the legitimating work. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that, that kind of follows into to, you know, my question here, which is uh, kind of the normative conclusions of realizing those egalitarian principles, given that there's going to be disagreements about what's fair, whether that's ideological or self-interested or preferences or whatever. So in uh, the island example of the mm-hmm. peanut forager and the fisher, um, it seems reasonable that those two people can pay the transaction costs to work out a purely consensual relationship. Um, mm-hmm. but doing that same thing with 8 billion humans is astronomically difficult, barring some sort of like crazy AI negotiation bots or something like that. Um, yeah. And so then the question is, I mean, as far as I'm concerned and, you know, when we apply this to the real world, it's just trade-offs, right? It's just, you know, a, a absolutely 100% consensual arrangement is astronomically difficult to achieve. It's like a North star to chase, but like, you know, it's, it's not something we can just flip a switch and get there. Um, so mm-hmm. do you think, uh, markets could have a role to play 
in sort of like the Ronald Coase model of sort of like paying somebody to go, okay, I'll take this spectrum and I'll pay you not to broadcast on that spectrum. Um, or like the ground rent taxation plans of Thomas Paine and Henry George, uh, things comics. Um, do you think that, you know, however impure that is, and yes, we have to deal with the initial allocation problems and, and equality, you know, starting point inequalities, have like democracy mm-hmm. dollars to allocate, you know, how to assign your preferences uh, relative to, you know, everyone else's preferences. Um, could market mechanisms be used to sort of, you know, uh, allow someone to, to participate consensually and decide, hey, I do or don't want to stop sign. Here's how I, you know, property rights should work. You know, I want, I'm going to pay people to stay off my land so I have my home. So, so, Luke, so Luke, can I ask you a question about the question? Is that like a um... – uh, like at that point, like at this point of your argument, because I, I think I understand what you're saying about trade-offs, but uh, but at this point, is is everything you're going to say about the po- like? In other words, is the difference between having a democratic state do these things and having some sort of market mechanism doing them, or maybe some combination of the two, is this like just sort of a pragmatic question of like which mechanisms can most could best approximate the impossible North Star of complete consent? Um, I mean, I, I look at it more as like a, uh, you know, pursuing a lesser evil than uh, our, our current. I mean, I, mean I, I generally subscribe to the Henry George argument about um, all the ways of, of rent seeking against land being both morally and pragmatically, um, you know, problematic. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm looking at it more from a, a pragmatist perspective but yeah on some level it, it does come down to to outcomes and does it maximize or, or does, it, does it increase the consensuality of economic relationships okay yeah so i mean there, yeah there's so there's a lot there i mean so maybe i'll kind of try to chip away at, at pieces um you know basically i think a few things i mean so one i do think there's some difficulties with trying to use market type solutions uh you know, to realize the kind of outcomes that, you know, I think would be justifiable under the anarchist perspective. And I mean, obviously the big problem, which you sort of noted quickly, is that using the market to sort of try to work out either consensual or fair arrangements is going to require that you properly allocate people starting holdings. Right. Right. You're, you're only going to be able to. And so then there's the big question of, well, like, well, what starting holdings do we give people? Mm. Uh, uh and I think that the problem is you get into something of a vicious circularity there, right? Because the whole question is, well, what sorts of coercion can we justify, right? Where, you know, coercion is sort of, the, in my view, sort of the foundation of property claims, right? You only, you know, to have a property claim is to be able to, you know, to have a claim to coerce, a permission to coercively exclude people from using right. that property, at least under certain conditions. Mm. So there's sort of a problem with trying to say, well, let's allocate holdings and then use that as a way of trying to then figure out, you know, figure out a justifiable way of like, you know, distributing property um, because it's like, well, you've got to distribute property in the first place. So it's basically, I think there's no, there's no way out of this except for you to sort of develop an, your own like independent substantive view about what kinds of coercion is justifiable and the circumstances under which it's justifiable. Uh, and that's going to basically do, uh, I think, end up having to do a lot of the work. Um, right. So for example, like to sort of maybe try to put this a little bit more clearly. So, like people have tried to use market mechanisms to 
think about, you know, fairness, for example, in various ways. So like Ronald Dworkin, for example, has this idea of saying, well, what resources should we allocate to people? Well, the way to do that is, yeah, give everybody, you know, some amount of, yeah, as you put it, like democracy dollars. That's not the language that uh, Dworkin uses, but it's the same idea. You know, you give people an equal share of money and then they all do a big auction and all of the resources get auctioned off. Um, and that's sort of a way of allocating resources in a fair way. Um, but uh, but even that, the sort of the question of like, well, suppose you just give people equal dollars. Uh, but there's a question of, well, what exactly are they bidding on? Like, so suppose you have two different people who have different, you know, sort of levels of well-being, right? Suppose the one has severe depression and one doesn't. But then suppose you give them an equal share of democracy dollars so that they end up, you know, and then they bid on resources. Uh, you might think, well, there's still going to be an unfairness that results, right? They still might live very different qualities of lives uh, as a result of this because they'll basically be able to have an equal amount of consumption, but one of them has severe depression, won't be able to sort of adequately enjoy that as much, their life goes worse. That's sort of an un unfair thing. We might think that that extra person should be compensated, uh, right? Or suppose that they have some other kind of disability that we would want to accommodate in various ways, uh, right? Then you'd say like, well, maybe we need to either, you know, reallocate democracy dollars across persons, or we need to change what it is that people are bidding on, right? We have to think of people as not just bidding on material things, but also bidding on various abilities that they might have various conditions that they might have, et cetera. You know, how much are you willing to pay to, for example, you know, not have depression or not be disabled in some way, uh, right? There's sort of this, there's this way of doing it, but all of that I think presupposes a prior conception of what counts as a fair distribution of resources, right? You're kind of trying mm -hmm. to use the market to, you're we're trying to reverse engineer the market to reach a distribution that you think would be roughly fair. But I sure. think, you know, it's at that point, it's like, well, why not just think that you already have this understanding of fairness and can try to use that sort of to directly think about how goods and resources ought to be distributed. Right. Um, so 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 is your point like one way, way of putting this point, Jesse, to be that mm -hmm. if if the idea is that we're using the market as a kind of discovery mechanism for fairness, we've sort of lost that if we if we kind of say, well, of course, we need fair allocate initial allocation for that to work. Because then we have to have like an independent way of figuring that out. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. So I, I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um, right. So, uh, so I, th I think that still sort of elides the, the argument about like, uh, you know. Oh, no, Luke, I, I lost you again. Oh, sorry. Test, test. Oh, I got him a little bit. Okay. He, he came through a bit for me. Uh, okay. I, he I heard it elides the argument of uh, like who does. Okay. Like All right, we're losing you. The, the, where you're kind of coming in, you're kind of, kind of coming in and out, but I, I heard who decides, um, which which I think, um, like, I, I'm not sure that the that the market uh, fix is is actually going to fix anything there, but I I, I have a, um, but I mean I think that that is an interesting like. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, th I think there's an interesting question there, you know, maybe, like, I'm not sure if this is what you're getting at, and I am going to go to, uh, my apologies, uh, after this, we're going to go to the uh, the next caller uh, for, for this, just for just kind of for the sake of, of, uh, of pulling, pushing through this, but, um, but I mean, I think the who, who decides question might be actually... You know, I'm not sure if this is where Luke is going or not, but you know, but it it, it might um, get back in an interesting way to the relationship between, like, one of the original humor arguments, which is like democratic legitimacy doesn't do anything. You know, that if you that if like 
coercion is unjustified. It's 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 still just as unjustified according to him, according to his reading of these intuitive cases uh, th- than it is if we're uh, uh, than uh, than it is if the same if the same coercion is being applied without democratic legitimacy and how somebody might go about justifying the sort of something like a social democratic state envisioned in the in your kind of second way of of um of developing the anarchist argument since you might think the democratic legitimacy doesn't um you might think the democratic legitimacy by itself doesn't do anything to make like coercion justified that would be unjustified otherwise right that they have a that like if it's if it's not already justified you might think that it's it's just still unjustified when you add in the uh, the democracy uh but you might think that if it's like legitimate to coercively enforce a fair distribution then then there's like the details might have to be worked out or there's a question of like who has standing to do this or whatever and like then the democratic legitimacy questions might come come back in after all because the same way that you know if there's like a sort of intuitive case for a fair distribution of resources there might also be one about a fair distribution of power yeah, may, maybe so. I mean, I still think there's going to be some degree, I think, of anarchist skepticism about the ability of democracy to sort of resolve this question. So basically, I, I think there are, again, sort of two ways you could go in response to the sort of worry about, like, who decides that I took Luke to be advancing, yeah. right? And so one is, again, to go the sort of consensus route, the radical, pa- what I'm calling sort of radical pacifist anarchism. Right. Because there, yeah. in some sense, that sort of solves the problem because then you don't have to worry about Oh, well, what counts as fair? You know, what's what does justice demand? Right. People sort of work it out themselves. Uh, They might have very differing conceptions of the good and what justice requires. But if they're able to come to consensus, then it's great. You know, we don't really have to worry about it because their consent legitimates the, the whatever arrangement they arrive at. If you get universal consent. Right. So in a way, it's a nice solution. But that's also sort of reflects the real difficulties of making this work, right? How do you get all these people with radically different views about what justice requires to come to an agreement without assigning any sort of, you know, prior rights to coerce with respect to private property rights? You know, that can be very, very challenging, right? The alternative route is, you know, the sort of social anarchist route or egalitarian anarchist route. And there I think what the egalitarian anarchist is going to have to say is they're going to just say, look, there's, there's a fact of the matter about what fairness requires, it's going to be hard to determine it, right? In some sense, that's what philosophers are trying to do, right? They're trying to work out and come, you know, get right. to the bottom of this, you know, what the fact of the matter is. Uh, and whatever it is, that's what we should do when, it, you know, that's what would justify coercion. Whatever fairness requires, you know, whatever a fair distribution looks like, that's what we're permitted to coercively enforce. Uh, people might disagree about this. Uh, they might have, you know, very different views about justice. But in some sense, they're just incorrect. Um, and you're still justified in coercing them, even if they don't agree about what fairness requires, because nonetheless, fairness requires using coercion in this way. Um, so that's, I think, kind of like the hardline answer. It's like, yeah, there will still be disagreement, but, you know, that's tough, right? It would really is, you know, there's still a fact of the matter about what's fair. And that's what, you know, when co- that's what justifies coercion. Yeah. And, and which which is what interesting thing about that answer, right, is that it's structurally the same as the as the kind of answer that like a you know 
anarcho-capitalists would, would would give about property rights you know that like the uh that you know that's like oh you know if you have whatever you know whatever Lockean Nozickian story or whatever other story you're going to tell about what justifies property rights you just have them and and it's sort of and like anybody's kind of entitled to enforce them because they're right yeah exactly and people might not recognize them but you know that's kind of their you know their mistake um but then right obviously the question is you know, do you accept that Lockean picture or not? And so that's that's sort of part of the anarchist project is trying to be like, no, actually, you know, this sort of Lockean picture fails. Like that's not what, ju- you know, that, right, that right, it right. doesn't justify coercion. Right, exactly. Okay, uh, so this was about what I meant to wrap up, but I feel bad because I had to cut him off a little early last time. So uh, I do want to get in Kusha's question before we go. Uh, Kusha, what is on your mind about today, my friend? Good morning, my friend Ben, and truly, it's no trouble at all. Last time I felt like I got a good amount of speaking in with your uh, prior colleague uh, on Catholicism and religions, but I really appreciate every opportunity, Ben, and it's nice to be able to speak with Jesse today. Uh, I read through some of his um, paper while uh, just before I got on, and I really want to thank him for making this um, case uh, laid out. Um, I want to start there by thanking cool. him greatly for making the paper. Nice. Thanks for taking the time to read it. You know, I appreciate it. I haven't read through all of it. I read uh, some of the beginning parts. And so one of the things that's important about your argument for me is that um, I speak politics every few months with the head of the accounting department at Berkeley School of Business, and he identifies as a libertarian. But I don't know if this is something you've noticed as well, but for many of those who are self-described libertarians, sometimes like when you scratch a little bit, you get like Reaganism just right there under the veneer of libertarianism. And obviously during Reagan's time, there was a pretty prominent split with Ron Paul wanting to go like his own way, like in the 80s, Ron Paul calling him out for like bombing Libya and if I'm not mistaken, like back in the Afghan Mujahideen and everything else. And so I think what your paper does is someone like my professor, he always says like, you know, there's no difference between people voting and to raise the taxes uh, for like a super rich person, a billionaire on the block to get their property that way or like going in and stealing it by force with gunpoint. And I think your paper does a very good job in addressing this argument about like, OK, if the state has legitimacy to enforce property rights and what about the converse, essentially? And my phone's on like a one percent. So I'd really like to hear your thoughts before it dies. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's right. Like. In some sense, like, I would endorse the view, like, I think the, what's interesting about this argument, you know, I hope, and I think part of its value is that even if you grant libertarians this, which I think in some sense you should, that when the state taxes you, that's basically equivalent to somebody at gunpoint coming and taking some of your stuff. Like, I think that's right. But the point of the argument is to say, well, yeah, but also when somebody sort of seizes <laughs> natural resources from the commons and claims that this is mine, you know, they're doing the same sort of thing, right? They're mm-hmm. still... You know, there's still a gun there. It's just being pointed mm-hmm. in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's right. what's beautiful about your argument. Yeah, if, yeah. The, uh, if the if the billionaire themselves uh, has private security, who mm-hmm. uh, who are who are operating within the bounds of the law to protect his property, then that's. Um, then that's that's on the same footing as uh, that's <laughs> yeah. on the same footing as the uh, as the rest of this, right? Like, and so it mm-hmm. seems like even if you do, um, even if you do go, I'm just gonna mute you, Kusha, because there's a lot no of uh, uh, there's a lot of wind or something in the background. But um, but I have, um, but yeah, that it's it's all it's all kind of on the same, you know. I mean, in, in a certain sense, I mean, I think one one thing this gets us to is is the kind of point that, you know. I mean, it's it's sort of 
in a, I mean, I think what you're responding to is maybe more philosophically sophisticated and interesting, but I mean, it's, it's kind of the, you know, some of the upshot, at least one of the more obvious upshots here is the same as the upshot of like uh, Matt Brunig's argument against the sort of, um, you know, internet libertarian understanding of the, the non-aggression principle that, uh, that, you know, yeah, like what's, what's doing all the work here, like at best, right? If you don't go the, the sort of, you know, uh, radical pacifist anarchist uh, route, you know, right. uh, if you don't go that way, right. If you do think that some sort of, um, that, you know, that it's, it's, it's okay to enforce a, a fair distribution, whatever that means. Right. You know, then like, that's kind of what's doing all the work, right. That, that this, this whole issue about coercion, you know, that's like, well, um, you know, coercion, coercion is kind of coercion is coercion, you know, whether, you know, whether it, it takes the form of private property or the state or whatever, like the real question is what justifies any of it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, yeah, I'm sort of trying to show that the libertarian justifications that sort of don't really work um, and egalitarian ones are more promising, which is, I think, a nice way to kind of, you know, boil down to the essence of the argument. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's definitely a connection there to Matt's uh, case against, you know, his argument. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good connection to draw. All right. Well, that that last that last line before that uh, was uh, was as perfect as summary as we're going to get. So I should probably jump off. But uh, thank you, Jesse. This was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. This is very fun. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, thanks for everyone for calling in and listening. Yeah, I appreciate it. And yeah, the link to the paper is, uh, you know, I think Ben posted it. So, you know, yeah, if you're interested, the, take a look. Yeah, it's also the description for this episode. So uh if you uh, if you haven't gotten enough of uh, of hearing Jesse talk about stuff like this, <laughs> uh, you could uh, tune in on YouTube tomorrow night. Uh, the uh, the kind of main event in lieu of the live interview uh, that we usually do on Monday nights uh, at eight thirty uh, is going to be the an unlocked interview that I did with uh, with Jesse a while back about community as a socialist value. So uh, thanks again. Thanks everybody for listening. Left is